Welcome to episode 21 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. My name is Stephanie Vomladke and my co-host Steve Sademan will join me today to talk about the security and military implications of COVID-19. We call this episode Shape Up because our feature interview is with Brigadier General Greg Smith from NATO's Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, Shape for short. Stephanie, how are you doing in this time of being locked down at home? I can't complain, Steve. How are you? Uh, doing pretty well. I think we're all being less productive because we're just so utterly distracted by the news, uh, what's coming out of, of not just New York City, but obviously across Canada. Uh, so I guess the first thing to talk about is that John Van sent out a letter on Friday that identified how the, the CAF is dealing with this. I thought, I thought first of all, I thought this was really good, that the openness, the transparency, I think it was a good message to send. What were things in it that caught your eye? I appreciated also the, the level of detail uh, that was included. Uh, my mind when I was reading that letter was just the expectations that people might have on the military right now. This is something that we're hearing a lot about in the United States. You know, when you spend $700 billion on defense, people have expectations about the ability of the military to respond. But those questions are being asked in the Canadian context as well. So uh, I appreciated the, the focus on what the Canadian Armed Forces are expected to do right now. And it seems the main emphasis is really on, I suppose, the protection of their health so that they can be relied upon to react if the federal government, provincial governments or the territories call on the Canadian Armed Forces for support. Yeah, I think that was really good. Obviously, the stories we've seen about the United States case where there's an aircraft carrier, the Theodore Roosevelt, that is now basically in port with a captain putting out public letters asking for help to handle the fact that he's got over 100, maybe even 200 COVID on his, on his ship. And uh, also the U.S. Marines apparently their training barracks is now full of, of uh, COVID patients. And so I think the focus that General Vance has of, first of all, just trying to keep the force healthy so that it can respond to things is really important. I also think that this message is really good because I've had a lot of people ask me questions and I've seen a lot of concern on Twitter about martial law and we're far, 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 far from having martial law, but aid to civil power is something that the military does do and uh, militaries are very good at logistics so even if they don't necessarily have the stuff, they're very good at getting stuff from point A to point B. Vance's discussion about the importance of using the forest to get support to the remote regions of Canada, and there's a whole lot of remote regions in this country. So I thought that was a very important message to be sent as well. Anything else in the letter that caught your attention? Yeah. Operation I, Laser. There it's Operation Laser, the primary Canadian Armed Forces response to COVID-19. Last time we spoke, we also talked about Operation Globe. Uh, and that okay. one was set up to assist in the repatriation of Canadians and to manage the quarantine at CFB Trenton. I was also wondering about what happens to deployed personnel overseas. And the CDS's letter also provides some details on that front. So there are over... 
2,000 Canadian military personnel deployed worldwide right now, and that's across 20 different missions. In the Middle East, both the NATO mission in Iraq and Op Impact have been suspended. Uh, for my grad class in international relations this week, I had planned a Skype conversation with a senior officer from Op Impact, and I was able to connect with her in Lebanon. Uh, as part of Op Impact's training activities, we have CAF personnel embedded with the Lebanese Armed Forces, and, and she's part of that uh, training task force. Right now, they're just staying put, and that rotation is scheduled to come home in April. So like other deployed troops, the emphasis is on force health and force protection. So not that different from back home, really keep yourself healthy and safe. And the activities seem to be generally suspended. And of course, this is likely to affect future rotations. So I think the letter mentioned op unifier in Ukraine specifically. So in that theater, only 60 personnel will deploy as part of the next rotation compared to the 200 initially plans. So, you know, I suppose having 60 personnel there is really to just hold down the fort and until the pandemic is over and trying to sort of hedge your bets. But it's interesting to see how across different theaters, you know, the, the bulk of the day-to-day activities are being suspended. And obviously there are disruptions to the following rotation. Yeah, I, I did notice the Ukraine mission in particular that this seemed to be something that was going to be pretty much put on ice because the challenge, of course, is how do you bring people home and then put the, send more troops back in the field and whether you're spreading more disease here or spreading more disease there. And this goes to a larger problem of summer is posting season where people are moving from spot to spot as they get promoted into new jobs, as people retire, as new officers and new enlisted folks start serving. The CDS was very clear about that, that what we usually expect is not is not going to happen, that, that fewer people are going to be moved around, that people who were expecting their lives to change, uh, were planning on doing house hunting, can't do that anymore. I think it was a very realistic take on these things. I think one of the most striking things that he said in the letter was basically that recruiting is at a standstill. And that's really striking because if recruiting is at a standstill for a significant amount of time, that's going to have a knock-on effect down the road because it's going to delay all kinds of activities. It's going to lead to a potential shrinking of the force as people do end up retiring or resigning from the military. I guess one way they're compensated by that is also letting people who had intended to retire not to retire as they see their their investments be diminished and their job prospects post-military be diminished. So there's ways to keep people on longer in the face of this. But I do think that the fact that recruiting is pretty much frozen at this moment in time is going to have an effect not just, you know, six months from now, but years and years from now as, as everything sort of gets delayed and as the force gets crunched because they don't get some new fresh blood. Yeah, it's not like the, the recruitment process was super fast before. Of course, there have been some improvements uh, recently, but there's likely to be a huge backlog of applications to process once this is over and the administrative processes resume their normal course. And the problem is this is also a lost opportunity because... Because as the economy goes downhill, if the military was able to recruit and process recruitment, then they would be able to take advantage of this moment in time. But they can't. They simply can't. And that's going to be a challenge. Do we want to talk at all about the brief blip of possibly having troops on the U.S. troops on our border and, and that whole whole mess? Or do you want to skip that? Well, that was a, a weird distraction, wasn't it, <laughs> this week? I don't know what would I, I, warrant I, the deployment of 1,000 U.S. troops 30 kilometers away from the Canada-U.S. border, but it was requested. It, it was requested by whom, right? It's one of these things where the, the way the Trump administration works is somebody throws an idea up that usually wouldn't get much play, and it just gets a far more play, in part because everybody looks at them and goes, well, they can do anything, because they, you know, no matter what bad idea they have, they might might play with, and and so it got a whole lot of attention on this side of the border. I don't really think it 
it got a whole lot of attention in the United States. I think the United States had a lot of other news stories. So I know some people were speculating, well, this was just Trump trying to divert, distract his base. And I'm, I'm sorry, but his base have other things to focus on right now, like getting food and whether or not they should break the various quarantine, do whatever it is they want to do. So I don't think it got a whole lot of play and Trump backed down very quickly from it. I don't I don't, I don't, don't think there was anything really invested besides a random idea that, that caused Canadians to pay attention, but not anybody else. So if the American military's role is not at our border, then what should it be doing? Well, I think its priority, of course, is keeping itself healthy. And they're doing a pretty lousy job of it, given mm. the stories that we've seen. Up until very recently, they still had gyms were still open at the, at some of the major uh, military academies and, and major military bases. They weren't really adapting the social distancing to their own troops. And so we're finding out that there's a major outbreak with, within the American military, uh, which has taken one aircraft carrier out of service. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned before the Theodore Roosevelt. And the Theodore Roosevelt is not one out of 11 aircraft carriers. It's one out of two or three dedicated to the Pacific. And so this means that the United States military capability in the Pacific has now been diminished quite significantly because it can't. it's not operating right now. And I think that's something that we need to take quite seriously, that, it, that we can't expect the United States to be operating at the way it usually does because it has to deal with this pandemic. It really makes us realize that how much the health of the military is a critical issue. Uh, and obviously they, they try to take care of that in normal times, but it's not going well right now. Now, the the military can still leverage some of its medical capacity, however, so I think we're likely to see that that domestic role played up. So there are still some Navy hospital ships. So there's some on the West Coast and East Coast to provide more beds, more medical ventilators. And then Mm -hmm. 9,000 National Guard troops have been called up. So we'll see what that looks like on the ground. Yeah, the, 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 one of the differences between the Canada and the United States is the United States does have a lot more medical capacity within their armed forces. And so they might not be best suited for dealing with COVID, but they potentially can be well suited for taking care of a lot of the other injuries and illnesses that people are experiencing. So those hospital ships that are that showed up in New York and will eventually show up in Los Angeles, they may end up not providing a lot of COVID beds, but they may end up taking some of the stress off of off the hospitals that are dealing with COVID mm-hmm. by handling everything else. So I, And there is a major role to play there. But the, one of the questions that we have, of course, is with all of our militaries distracted by this kind of stuff, will our adversaries take advantage of it? And we have seen hacking of, you know, government websites in this moment of crisis. We have seen North Korea is looking like it's amping up its testing program. And so, I, you know, we shouldn't expect to see an invasion any day now from any of our adversaries. But the things they've been doing in the past, they're not dialing down in this moment of time. They're dialing up, if anything. Yeah. And in other war zones, well, in war zones around the world, there's been a, an appeal by the United Nations to adopt some ceasefires and to really focus on what the real threat is right now, which is COVID-19. So talked about, you know, maybe Canada and the United States adversaries, but there are other uh, war theaters right now that could benefit from focus, focusing on other things, meaning, you know, the response to the pandemic as opposed to uh, fighting. Yes, but what we've seen instead in Afghanistan is that there's still been uh, acts of violence the past couple of weeks. There's been calls by the Taliban and others to, to reduce their levels of violence, whether that's with the agreement of you know that they've been trying to negotiate with the United States or not. But we still see violence breaking out. I mean, one of the pivotal problems that we're going to be facing is that you know we have our challenges dealing with COVID. We live in homes where we can self-isolate. We have access to food and water and electricity and all the rest of it. The refugee camps that are on the edges of Syria are going to be a nightmare 
because people can't so self-distance there. They don't have adequate medical attention right now. They don't have a lot of the resources. So that is really the nightmare scenario that we're not really seeing much in the news. There's a little bit of coverage of it, but it's mm. it's one of the things that's going to be a real problem, and it's, it's it may decimate those refugee camps. Yeah, the first case of coronavirus was reported in the world's biggest refugee camp, and that's in Bangladesh. There's no capacity to conduct testing. Overcrowding makes social distancing nearly impossible. And here, we're not even talking about refugee camps' capacity to treat infected patients. That must be virtually non-existent. The measures that are put in place are like portable hand washing stations, but humanitarian workers must be bracing for the worst right now. Yeah, and so it's going to affect the the refugees. It's also going to affect the humanitarian workers, too. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, in the Canada, United States, in Europe, the doctors and nurses have been really hit hard by this. They've been risking their lives uh, to fight and to try to save lives. And we're going to see that same, but even more so amongst the humanitarian workers, because they don't they won't have any of the PPE, the protective gear that is in shortage in the West, but is non-existent in these refugee camps. So it's going to spread and... and uh, it's, I'm not sure there's much anybody can do about it right now because everybody's too much focused on their own problems at home to try to lend resources to the NGOs who are dealing with the non-government organizations that are dealing with these problems. In fact, even some of Canada's NATO allies have been asking for that humanitarian help. Spain has called on NATO um, and requested equipment, 450,000 respirators, 150,000 disposable gowns, gloves, Mm -hmm. test kits, masks, thermometers, ventilators. So allies and partners were asked to provide assistance as they see fit. Uh, It's akin to providing humanitarian support to Spain, essentially. Yeah. And there's been some of that. I mean, the there was, you know, initially some of the stories out of Italy was that they weren't getting help from the EU, but there's now been, uh, I saw news of flights of patients from, from Italy to Germany for people to get treatment. So I think the allies are starting to step up. Even though everybody has their own problems, there's there, obviously the disease is being spread unevenly. Some countries are A, fighting it well, and B, have had less of a problem with it than others. We're seeing more of them doing more stuff. So I do think Spain got some help, but it's not enough. Uh-huh. It's clearly not enough. And what do you make of the whole militarization of the discourse around COVID and calling this a war? Um, how does that resonate with you? It's funny that you ask that because one of my former students, Aisha Ahmad, had a wonderful thread on Twitter, sort of a call to arms. And she got some critique from somebody about how the militarization of, of these issues is problematic. But this is the gravest security threat that the West has faced since World War II, I think, in terms of the number of people who are going to be harmed by this will will be the, the most significant loss of life in many countries. And, and we're not even, you know, we can eventually talk about Africa or, or Southeast, South Asia or other places that are, are really poorly prepared to, to face this, this wave. But we need to mobilize for this. We need to do things that we did during World War II. We need to sacrifice. We need to spend outrageous sums of money. We need to have industry turn their production from their ordinary stuff to, to the things we need. And so in, in World War II, you know, the factories turned from making cars to making tanks. Now we're, we're turning our factories from making cars to making ventilators. Uh, Brooks Brothers Others has come out and is saying they're going to make masks. And so the idea of fully mobilizing the economy 
to fight this. And if it means producing endless deficits, so be it. I think the call for people to do what they need to do to get through this is very similar. So does it make sense to call it a war? I, in this case, I think yes, because I think it, it that, that raises a level of commitment and, and call to arms that I think is necessary to do this all together because it's very much a collective enterprise. The wars of the past 20, 30, 40 years might have only involved the 1% of our country that, that is in the military. But this war, this this fight against this this pandemic involves all of us in a way that we haven't seen in our lifetimes. And so um, I, I don't find it to be problematic. I, I do worry about some things. So for instance, yesterday, the big news was that Viktor Orban, uh, the leader of, of Hungary, was given all kinds of powers by his parliament, emergency powers. And Hungary's democratic credentials were already suspect before yesterday, but they're pretty much gone. I do know that the Trump administration was talking about the possibility of giving the Department of Justice more authority to to try people or to, to arrest people without the usual protections and that got pushed back very quickly so there is a, a danger that in times like these that people take the threats to our lives and then use that to empower the police state essentially to weaken our democracy and the Canada, Canadians are lucky in that we just had our election so we don't have to worry about one for a while and sure the you know, minority government could lead to another one, but I don't think anybody besides random candidates uh, are speaking of, of bringing down this government anytime too soon. But the United States has an election uh, this year, and so I worry about about that. So I do think that we can use this rhetoric of war, but be wary of the mistakes we've made in war in the past. I mean, in World War II, we, we use the, the fears to in turn, Japanese Americans, Japanese Canadians, and that was the wrong decision then. So we got to be careful about the decisions we make in this war. But I think that this is a war that we can't avoid. How do you feel about this? <laughs> I think you've covered it. But I think when your point about mobilization, total mobilization in this context is, is well taken. But I feel like the, the debate over the militarized response to, to COVID or the securitization of, of the pandemic depends on various types of manifestations. It can mean, as you say, how society can mobilize in support of the response, or it can mean more direct, overtly militarized responses like military personnel being deployed to enforce lockdowns like we've seen in Italy, in which case it's a much more visible day-to-day presence and a major change for, for the population. Mm-hmm. So depending on what yeah. you look at, what kinds of responses you look at, you can have a very mm-hmm. different answer to that question. Yeah, and, I, and I, I certainly don't want to have the militaries come out and be the law enforcement. I, I think that there's plenty of capacity left, despite the fact that a large percent of the New York Police Department now apparently is down with COVID. I I don't think we're seeing breakdowns in social order that require a a military response. I think when we see the military out there, it's going to be mostly about transferring equipment and providing medical support. And again, providing some assistance to the to the governments of Canada and of to, to our allies, but obviously Italy and maybe Spain will be exceptions to that, where they're so utterly decimated by the disease that they are calling out the military to do more. On the other hand, both Italy and Spain have paramilitary forces that are in between the military and and the police. The the Carabinieri uh, of Italy might be serving in this role rather than actually having the the out and out regular military serving in these roles. This is pretty depressing. So. Yeah. How can we change a topic to be uh, to end on a less depressing note? 
All right. Well, we've talked about how the Canadian Armed Forces and the Department of National Defense have adapted their battle rhythm. So, Steve, how have you adapted your battle rhythm to this? I'm actually, in some ways, getting more exercise because uh, I'm using my wife's treadmill almost every day now. I can't play Ultimate Frisbee anymore, although the timing of this disease was not bad for me since I was already injured and was out of playing Ultimate. I can still do the treadmill with my pulled hamstring. But I tend to work out of home a lot, so it's not that different otherwise. But I am catching up on, on my Clone Wars. I, we signed up for Disney Plus in the fall, so... I'm sorry, you're what now? Clone Wars. Clone okay. Wars. It's uh, cartoons that bridge the time between the second and third prequel movies, which show sort of Anakin and uh, Skywalker uh, and others dealing with uh, the bad guys, although it turns out ultimately what happens. Uh, spoiler, uh, Anakin becomes a bad guy. <laughs> so It literally uh, means nothing to me. I know, I know, but our audience might, and it's funny because. Yes, yes. um, but you got to uh, spell it out for me because otherwise I just. Uh, yeah, because the guy, that guy who, the guy who became Darth Vader is Anakin Skywalker, and it's funny because one of the things I am reading every lunch, a bunch of uh, folks wrote a book called Strategy Strikes Back, which is about how Star Wars explains modern military conflict, and so each day you read a different chapter, and it's and it's very accessible, so it's not really techy, but like there's chapters on civil military relations, there's chapters on women in the military, there's chapters on how to recruit a force. And it applies it from Star Wars, you know, concept of Star Wars and how to how to get the right fleet, for instance, and and all that. And so I I read a chapter each morning, each day for lunch. So that's been one thing I've been reading. One book I would recommend for folks in this time of pandemic is World War Z. Uh, Mm -hmm. Max Brooks, who's a son son of Mel Brooks. The genius of that book is it shows how countries react differently to the the spread of the zombies, which is a different kind of pandemic. And it shows how some countries adapt better than others and how societies respond to that threat. I don't think our current problems are as as severe as a, as a zombie pandemic, but I do think it has some parallels that might be instructive for people. And it's a it's a really great read. It's a really interesting read. It has some funny parts and it. it has some moving parts in, in it. Basic idea of the book is that there's post pandemic there's a un mission to develop a history of the conflict at the very beginning of the book the guy who's who's writing the book says you know we've been given this mission to document the war but i kept on writing these stories about individual histories and oral history essentially of the war and my bosses said they didn't need this in the official documentation write your own damn book and so this is my own damn book about it mm-hmm. and so it features stories from the very outset of the virus which happens to be in china and how it spreads through the world and then how individual countries react to it and so it's story after story around the world how they learn to fight it and it's a really compelling book so if there's one kind of book i'd, I'd recommend would be doing that great so uh, one the book qu- is better than the movie right oh god uh, yes the do you book have movie recommendations now, since uh, we're on the topic. Sure. One thing I was thinking about was what are some good Canadian defense security studies type movies? And I've got an old one and I've got a new one for people. The old one is Devil's Brigade, which is a, a fictional account of a real thing, which was during World War II, there was a joint U.S.-Canadian special forces unit that was formed. And I haven't watched it in quite some time, but I need to get back to it because I thought it was a really good, interesting portrayal of, of a real Canadian event that had it was a really significant unit uh, during the war. 
I'd say a more recent movie to watch would be Hyena Road, which was, again, a fictional account of something that was real, which was when the Canadians were in Afghanistan, they built a road to try to make it easier for them to get around without getting uh, roadside bombs to also open up markets for the Afghans. It's a fictional account. It's funny because the the general at the time, uh, Dean Milner, is depicted in the movie in some way, and, and the general in the movie curses a whole lot. So I was like, does General Milner curse as much as this guy? And it's like, mm, okay. But so I think that's sort of the, the best account of, of uh, the Canadians in in, uh, in Afghanistan in terms of a fictional movie. So those are a couple of movies I'd recommend. From what I understand, you're not watching movies too much right now because you're overwhelmed by your own infestation <laughs> of kids in your house. My battle rhythm has changed a lot. It involves a lot of cooking, more time with the kids, and zero alone time, Steve. <laughs> but I really can't <laughs> complain. <laughs> we're all healthy and we're staying safe. I'm trying to stay off social media, though. I find the different advice that you're getting on social media a little bit stressful. Some people tell you to keep a schedule. Some people tell you not to put any pressure on yourself. If you're a political scientist, you're supposed to engage publicly and analyze the global COVID-19 response. In my background right here at home, you know, my kids are throwing food and stuff at each other and you're just thinking, I need a timeout. So for me, it's no more social media noise. I'm going to focus on two things right now. My students whose end of term is being disrupted and my kids who are in the same situation, but for much, much longer. You just have to come up with creative ways of keeping your kids busy in this time. I've relied on you know, my husband and, and my mother. My mother is uh, you know, with us in, in this lo lockdown, so that's been helpful. But you know, you find puzzles with as many pieces as your kids can handle. And then <laughs> my eight-year-old discovered the Harry Potter books. So he is now oh, in self-isolation mode in every sense of the word. Every morning is like a weekend. You know, Watch a little bit of TV in the morning as I prepare breakfast. Breakfast and then Ian, my, my eldest, goes straight for his Harry Potter books. I'm very grateful to well, Rowling's for rolling those books out because now they're saving my life. Well, if you want to him to have a conversation about the how Harry Potter applies to, to the lessons of his classroom, I can always help you out with that because I consider myself a Harry Potter expert. Great. It's on the public record. <laughs> <laughs> and what's teaching like these days for you, Steve? Term's not over for you either, is it? It's going okay. I had a, my graduate, my dissertation proposal workshop last last night. And so that's only five people. So this Carlton has a Zoom-ish capacity built into its courseware. And it worked pretty well. One of the students presented his, his dissertation proposal and we were able to give him feedback on that. And we were able to talk about research methods. And that, that led to a blog post I'm going to push out uh, after we're done talking about the challenges of doing research. Because one of the things I, I, I feel a real lot of sympathy and empathy for students, as much as hard as it is to, for us to get our work done, we, you know, you're, you're, you have tenure, I have got tenure, we're not going to lose our jobs anytime too soon. But the students who are just starting out doing their, re their big research projects, you know, they're supposed to get out of their programs in a, in a, a finite amount of time. And a lot of them were hoping to move on this summer to do field work, which is going to be very, very difficult to do. So we talked a little bit about the strategies of dealing with that. My other class, the good news is that I had already had the class, even before the pandemic, scheduled to have students present the last three weeks. So they're all presenting uh, research papers on different aspects of civil-military relations around the world and historically. And so what I'm having them do is present putting their narrated PowerPoint slides online. So PowerPoint allows you to talk through your slides and record it. They've posted that. And so on our courseware, 
discussion forum, I'm asking the rest of the students in the class to give each of the presenters feedback, suggestions, questions, comments, so that way these students can then turn around their papers and make them better for, for when they turn them into me. So that that's the strategy I've used there. And it it seems to be working pretty well thus far. How are your classes working out these days? I've mostly focused on asynchronous methods to adapt to this. Students and I have been posting slides and videos online. Some students have been especially creative in an attempt to cheer us up, and it's really worked, so kudos to them. Uh, online discussion boards have been quite lively, too. And to be honest, this has been a bit of a discovery for me because I'm thinking of my grad seminar specifically, but we typically meet for a three-hour session in a group. And you can tell right away who Who's more comfortable with talking and reacting spontaneously to the debates that are going on in the classroom. And so now that we have online discussion boards, I can see that uh, different people are participating because maybe they feel more comfortable with more time to articulate their ideas and they've taken to writing a lot in those discussion boards. So you're seeing different people shine, which I'm appreciating about uh, this, this more recent change. At the same time, even though I've moved a lot of our activities online, other students are under a lot of stress and have had to relocate or have had to care for loved ones. So I think that the teaching approach has to be very flexible and catered to the needs of each individual student. So really the last two weeks have all have been really about connecting with, with each student in that way. And of course, I can do that in a, in a grad class with 13, 13 students. And beyond that, I mean, the other stuff doesn't really disappear. I'm on a hiring committee and a dissertation defense committee. So this has moved forward, but on Zoom. So you see everyone in their sweatpants and we all look very comfortable. Yeah, the, some rhythms don't stop. I got my first request to, for a tenure or promotion review today that I have to do over the summer. So uh, some things never end, but the semester will end soon. The good news about the Canadian academic universe compared to the American one is that this happened much closer to the end of ours than to the end of theirs. So we only have a few more weeks to get through and then it, then it's grading season. And uh, my, in terms of my flexibility, I've told students that they need extensions. They can have it. In fact, I used a Harry Potter meme for that. <laughs> There'll always be uh, help at those at NIPSIA for those who ask for it as opposed to Hogwarts. And I've, I saw somebody online suggest that because we're all distracted and we're less productive, we can't ex expect our students to be anything but. And so that person suggests as a strategy that students can't do any worse than their current grades were before the pandemic struck. They can do better. They can improve their work. And so I told my students that basically the same thing, which is that mm. unless they plagiarize what they have, to, <laughs> their, their stuff and their, the, that they have left right, or if they don't do the, the assignments at all, then their grades will be at least as good as where they were on March 1st uh, or March 10th or whatever the date was. And they can improve their grades by doing better on the final written assignments, but they, they can't really do themselves any harm. And I think they appreciated that, that, that they're not going to stress out about the grades at a time where grades are the least important thing in the universe. Yeah, I think that's good advice. We're not okay. be talking about the, the pandemic, though, in the feature interview. Today, we have our long-awaited interview, Brigadier General Greg Smith. He's the J5 at the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, or SHAPE for short, and that's in Mons, Belgium. The J5 means he's in charge of plans related to NATO operation. What is not mentioned in General Smith's bio, I've noticed, is that he was a visiting defense fellow at Queen's uh, not too long ago at the Center <laughs> for International and Defense Policy. So just going to make that plug right now. Uh, but yeah, it was a pleasure to reconnect uh, while I was in Belgium and then to share this this interview on Battle Rhythm. Fantastic. I want to wish all of our listeners health and 
good luck in finding ways to get through uh, our isolation. I think Team Canada is doing a really uh, good job uh, on this stuff. I wish everyone the the best. And Stephanie, good luck dealing with your kids and your husband and your mother in close quarters. Have a great week or two until we chat again to our listeners. As always, wash your hands. Stay safe, Steve, and talk to you soon. We are taking Battle Rhythm to Belgium. I'm sitting here at SHAPE, which is Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe with Brigadier General Greg Smith. Thank you so much for being on Battle Rhythm. Very happy to be here, Stephanie. Thank you. Now, we met several years ago when you were the Commandant of the Staff College in Kingston. After that, you got deployed to Iraq as part of Operation Inherent Resolve. Then you had a stint at the Center for International and Defense Policy as our VDF, Visiting Defense Fellow. Then you went on to become the Canadian Military Representative at SHAPE. And now you are wearing a NATO hat as the J5. Tell us what you're doing now after this tumultuous change of different jobs in the last few years. Sure, Stephanie. And I'd just like to say I'm a big fan of Battle Rhythm. I do listen to it. <laughs> we have a gym here. It's a great thing to listen to. So yes, uh, I was in a Canadian position for a year. And then based off a of retirement, I was moved up to be uh, the SHAPE J5. And so SHAPE is the military strategic headquarters for NATO. It's in Mons, Belgium, not to be confused with Brussels. Brussels is where the political headquarters is. Down here in Mons, which we call the engine for NATO, if the cockpit, I suppose, is up in Brussels, it's the engines down here because we drive forward everything it's doing. And J5 in the continental system means plans. So I'm the head military planner for NATO because NATO is obviously a military alliance. And so I write plans. So I am the J5 and in the continental system, that is plans. And therefore, I deal with military strategic plans, policy, and I'm also responsible for a small number of courses that we teach within NATO so that we can uh, take the 29 different nations and make sure their military members understand how NATO operates. That's a simple explanation of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. That's perfect. And we won't run through all of the J functions, but I think it's important to not, understand what not that J5 exciting. stands for. And thank you for the kind words. I'm glad that you are a NAVID Battle Rhythm listener. Speaking so. of battle rhythm, there is a defense ministerial coming up very shortly at the NATO headquarters. And although you know it's not here in shape, what happens uh, at the NATO headquarters in terms of ministerials and the summits does affect the battle rhythm right here. So how has this impacted your work here at SHAPE? Yes, absolutely. So again, because uh, up in Brussels, they have their battle rhythm, which is very much based on uh, some of their big meetings. So they have regular meeting of the CHODs, the Chiefs of Defense, in what they call MCCS, the Military Committee CHOD session. Uh, that happens three times a year. It's followed shortly thereafter by a defense ministerials, then followed again by foreign ministerials. And then lately there's tended to be leader meetings. So the heads of state show up as well, or the uh, political heads of state. And that happens lately, yearly, but it doesn't necessarily happen to happen so. So therefore, we're working on things throughout the year, 
And there's reports due, of course, to tell the chads, tell the defense ministers, tell the foreign ministers how we're advancing what they've told us to do. And so there's some very down-to-earth things that have to happen. We, Sakir lives here, so Supreme Allied Commander Europe, who is the four-star American general responsible for NATO, who's equally the commander of UCOM, European Command, the US, the US uh, Europe-based combatant command. He shows up for each one of these meetings and he has to be kept informed of what's going on. And so there's lots of paperwork that has to be done to, to update him on how the various work strands, which is one of the NATO vocabulary terms, how all the work strands are advancing. Plus, quite often, we're trying to make sure that the international military staff and the inter international staff are current on what we've done down here, which, like I said, has happened throughout the year. But these, uh, the battle rhythm up in uh, Brussels will say, okay, time for another big meeting. Tell us how it's going. Can I ask also about your own battle rhythm? Because I saw you pull up here on a pink bike. It's true. It's my daughter's bike. My personal battle rhythm. Listen, in, in every profession, there are jobs that are considered good and some that are not so good. And when I was the NMR, which was a very interesting time to be the national military rep, because it's all about having the, the connections nationally with the 28 other countries. But equally, one of the jobs is to be the commander of Formation Europe. So the 400 plus Canadians scattered I don't know, 70 plus locations in 18 different countries around Europe, you were responsible for them, for their support, to shift to a NATO job. And when they say you're going to be the J5, as any of the military listeners will know, that anytime they say J5, that means plans. And so they, people always look at you and say, why are you standing there? You should be planning. Um, so there is a lot of stuff to do. I get up at 4.30 in the morning. I go to bed at 10.30 at night. And a lot of the time, unfortunately, in between is doing a lot of plans. But, as they once told me, uh, staff officers don't work unless you're standing in a trench, getting rained on, or standing on a bridge, or flying in danger. You're not really working. So it's uh, a tremendously interesting opportunity, though, to work within NATO and learn how NATO works in this job because it's a very interesting job to learn about how NATO operates. And how does planning work with 29 different member states? Yes, well, how does planning work in NATO? The first step, I think, is always that NATO headquarters in Brussels is what gives us the political, political guidance. Clearly, they have to achieve some type of consensus at 29, which is going to take a while. It's a tremendous amount of work. I don't have to work up there. But it's a tremendous challenge to achieve consensus on security affairs across 29. Uh, obviously, vastly different countries, two of which are in North America, Iceland, uh, somewhere in the middle. A big, big challenge, actually. But in the end, what they need to do is give us the direction on how we're going to progress whatever uh, work strand, plan, policy they want to achieve. And so if they've done their job right, and we work a lot with the international military staff and the international staff, it gives us the precise strategic framework we need to write up military strategic plans. And uh, the big thing I think I've learned here is it's done very collaboratively. Yes, we have to think up uh, or start our orientation here ourselves, but at the same time, we have a number of subordinate headquarters across Europe that clearly they have to be able to say, yes, we can support what you're thinking. And so we have uh, a headquarters in Brunsum in the Netherlands, another one down in Naples in Italy, and those are the two key joint force commands. But equally, we have two new headquarters standing up, one in um, Germany, which is called the JSEC, or the Joint Support Enablement Command, and then a fourth one, which is also, again, just standing up in Norfolk, Virginia, which is called Joint Forces uh, Command Norfolk. It's also it's at the same time with the Second Fleet, and that will be responsible for sea lines of communication. So those are just the Joint Forces Command. Now, equally, we have what's called Single Service Commands. And so we have Land Command based out of Izmir, Turkey, 
uh, Maritime Command based out of Northwood, just north of London in the United Kingdom, Air Command in Ramstein, Germany, and finally a NATO soft headquarters that's co-located with us here in Mons. And so as we plan these things, in addition to going across the staff from J1 to J9+, plus, uh, we equally have to work with all our subcommands to say, as we propose these strategic plans, is this what you're going to be able to achieve operationally? So it's been a good learning process on how you have to collaborate heavily to make sure they can achieve what you're, uh, what you're imagining. And thank you for spelling out the acronyms. There There's are, lots. There's lots in there. A lot to learn. Uh, as a uh, military strategic level command, ACO, Allied Command Operations, which is headquartered at SHAPE, oversees the bulk of NATO operations activities, military exercises. We in Canada are talking a lot about enhanced forward presence, which is somewhat of a different model of operation uh, than what we're used to. And you'll correct me in a second because I should have said mission. You can explain why that is. Different mission than, let's say, NMI, NATO mission in Iraq. So can you give us some insights into the planning implications of having missions that are structured differently? Definitely. So the way it works here in NATO, and it's very similar to uh, how many Canadians and other allied officers would be used to, we in plans start developing what needs to be done, again, based off political direction. And we do so with our current operations uh, comrades working with us so that as we plan something, the people that are actually going to execute it are immediately looking at what we're doing. As we make up our plan, it gets briefed through the various levels of command up to four stars here in, in shape. And ultimately, it'll be briefed up to the nations who have to agree to it because they're the ones that are actually going to have to make it happen. Because as you know, other than the AWACS, NATO doesn't command anything. They're all national forces. And so the nations are tremendously interested to what we're planning here and to agree that, yes, they're going to contribute to the alliance and participate in those activities. And so therefore, why up in the enhanced forward presence in the Baltic countries and in Poland, it's an activity, a mission in NATO mission Iraq, obviously an operation in Operation Resolute Support in Afghanistan, all based on what direction came out of NATO headquarters and how they wanted to proceed with that activity, who would be the framework nation, who would participate in it, all based on that political direction that's obviously based off consensus at 29. Since we're so focused on the eastern flank, maybe sometimes we neglect to talk about the southern flank. What's going on on the southern flank right now? Well, the south. NATO thinks 360. Obviously, where you sit is where you stand. And again, NATO is an interesting alliance in the sense that although it may have started much smaller at 12, it's now at 29. And so two of the members, again, far across the Atlantic, much the rest here in Europe, and uh, some of them look south. Um, there is obviously instability, terrorism, and other different security problems that occur to the south. And so, yes, we look south as well. There's a number of efforts to do that, which include we have something called the Hub for the South, which is basically an information gathering center. We do a lot of uh, defense capacity building, and it's, it's a partnership. Having done a NATO course with some North African officers, it's very clear you can't look at them and say, this is what you're going to do. They're sovereign countries. Uh, they're proud sovereign countries, many of, them, many of them ancient civilizations, and to tell them how they're going to do their security, it's not the way you want to approach it. So as NATO looks at this, we have to do so cooperatively, um, particularly with our partners across uh, North Africa and the Middle East. Super. And you still have some time left here as the J5. It's a three-year appointment, correct? Yes. This position, like many of them in NATO, are rotational. So I am in a 
the J5, the head planner for NATO. It's shared with the United Kingdom. And I came to the job late. There was a Canadian that was in there for a year and then retired. And so I've uh, been doing it for 15 months. I'll finish up at two years. But then it'll be rotated to a UK officer who I already know his name and know where he's coming from. It's always good to know who's spelling you off. But uh, that's the case of J5 and what I'm doing here. I look forward to seeing what's next and not that I wish it upon you, but should you return to academia for even a short stint, let's say at Queen's again, what might you want to study now that you've had this NATO experience, both as an NMR and as a J5? Oh, it's a get my academic hat back on, which I always really enjoyed. I mean, I'm a closet academic myself and have enjoyed any time I've had the opportunity to go back and think. One of the times I uh, did some postgrad, I did something on national power and studied Canada of all places. And I found it tremendously interesting to better understand Canada and what we are from a diplomatic information, military and economic sense. And then even go into the little bit more dark and murky world of what's soft power, what's reputation, what's honor, what, what's important about how, a world, how the world thinks about Canada. And I, said, I actually found it was tremendously enabling in my previous job as the National Military Representative here at SHAPE, but equally as the J5, just thinking about my own nation, that Canada's a tremendously powerful and important country. We're seen that way within NATO. We Canadians are wonderfully pejorative think not that much of ourselves and perhaps that's a good way because if everybody just thinks you're nice it's much better than the alternative and so I've really found it very interesting to study Canada in that sense and how powerful we are economically militarily and if I ever got a chance I'd, I'd really enjoy going back and looking at that further because I think Canada has a lot to be proud of here in NATO and as a nation and I hope I can help that someday. I've seen some of those thoughts on Twitter. Yes, I am a closet Twitterer as well. But no, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be impressed of about Canada. And we don't do a very good job of maybe explaining how good we are at things. And frankly, here in NATO, which is sitting in Belgium, many people don't really know what Canada is. There's a vague understanding that there's a lot of snow in Canada, that it's a really big country. And then we curiously have this ability to speak French and English and make our nation work wonderfully, despite any type of national challenges, which isn't quite the same in all of Europe. And so it's, it's a really interesting experience from here to look at that and uh, use that as we do our job from day to day. Thank you, General Smith, for being on Battle Rhythm and for explaining to us what the J5 does and what uh, shape is preoccupied with these days. No, thank you, Stephanie. And uh, I'd just like to say again, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I really appreciate the fact that we have academics in the world that are caring about what Canada is doing in NATO and with our security situation. I would just offer that to any of my military colleagues or uh, diplomats out there, NATO is a tremendous experience. Uh, I've learned a lot about it. I've really appreciated my time here and I do hope I get to continue to use it in the future, but I'd offer it up to anybody. This is a really interesting place to work as a Canadian. Well, it's my third visit in three years, so I'll be back. Hope so. <laughs>